Section 13 of the Book of the Ocean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tanika. The Book of the Ocean by Ernst Ingersoll. Chapter 9. Yachting and Pleasure Boating. Yacht is a word direct from the Dutch language which has given to the English so many of its sea terms, meaning originally a fast boat such as was built for chasing pirates and smugglers, and later a pleasure boat. The latter meaning alone is now kept in view by the word which is properly applied to anything designed and used for pleasure sailing, whether moved by sails, steam or electricity. In Great Britain, where yachting as we now understand it arose, it was not until about 1650 that races between pleasure craft began to be sailed on the Thames and in the quiet waters about the Isle of Wight, while the first yacht club was not formed until 1720, at Cork in Ireland. Even then, a century elapsed before yachting as a sport attracted much attention even among the British, famous for their love of the sea. In 1812, a yacht club was founded at Cowes in the Isle of Wight. It received a new impetus and became the Royal Yacht Club in 1817, the Prince Regent having joined it, and in 1833 was again recognized by King William III as the Royal Yacht Squadron, the designation it bears today. It carried on races, or regattas, as they soon came to be called, borrowing from the Italians a term descriptive of the old Venetian gondola races, but all sorts of cruising boats were matched against one another, classified by a tonnage rule with no allowance for size or any of the system by which contestants are now classified and equalized. By this time, however, there was peace on the North Atlantic, and many a good seaman was free to turn his attention to enjoying and improving the tools of his profession. By this time, also, the Americans had made great headway as shipbuilders and seamen, and by rivalry with the old world for trade, and by experience in the Newfoundland fisheries and the West Indies fruit trade, had acquired a skill in building and rigging ships that astonished the world by their speed and weatherly qualities. It was natural that these ideas should influence pleasure craft on this side of the water, as Great Britain's long sea struggles had influenced its sailors. And when, in 1844, the New York Yacht Club was founded, the conditions were favorable for beginning that home development of yachting as a sport which was soon to place the Americans and Canadians among the leading yachting peoples of the world and to lead to those international tests of speed that nowadays excite so widespread and intense an interest. The great preponderance in numbers and value of pleasure vessels in the United States and in the number of clubs and club members is due not only to our large population and long coastline, but to the great extent of inland waters furnished by our rivers and interior lakes, and to the prevalence of bays or protected lagoons such as Narragansett Bay, the Great South Bay of Long Island, New York Harbor, Delaware, and Chesapeake Bays, and the long series of sounds that border the southern Atlantic coast from Bonnegut to Biscayne. 
The Great Lakes are bordered by yacht clubs on both sides and furnish space and weather for quite as serious work as tries the skills of ocean navigators, while a hundred smaller lakes make fine pleasure waters and excellent training grounds for freshwater sailors. Though the first regatta in America was sailed in 1845, little over half a century ago, the evolution of American yachts began with the building of the Sloop Maria by Robert L. Stevens, one of that family of remarkable inventors who had already devised the first practical screw steamer and afterwards created the Monitor. Her model, as we learn from an excellent article in The Century for July 1882 by Samuel G. W. Benjamin, was suggested by the low, broad, almost flat-bottomed sloop employed to steal over the shallows of the Hudson and the Sound. Vessels, depending upon beam rather than on ballast for stability, and imitated by many of our coasters, which are so stiff that they sometimes make outside voyages without either cargo or ballast. But the Maria had a long, sharp, hollowed bow, whence she expanded aft, with a little taper at the stern, so that her deck plan was that of an elongated flat iron. The principal novelty about her, however, was the use of two center boards. A center board is a plate of wood or metal suspended usually by a corner pivot within a sheath or box in the waist, which can be let down through the keel into the water so as to form an adjustable keel. It is the most convenient form of a very old device for preventing a boat's drift to leeward or tendency to capsize under the pressure of the wind. In earliest times a mat was hung over the side. Later. This was replaced by the leeboard, apparently a Dutch invention, which may still be seen on the canal barges in Holland, and which was a feature of the pirogues or periogers, shallow double-ended sailing canoes, that in early times formed almost the only type of small sailboat in New York waters. Two other novel foreshadowing features possessed by Mr. Stevens' boat were the use of rubber compressors on the traveller of the main boom to ease the strain of the sheet. Rubber is applied in many places about modern rigging, and the bolting of lead to the keel as outside ballast. The Maria justified the expectations aroused by these and other novelties in Holland rig by beating everything in existence, until a Swedish gentleman in New York constructed a much smaller boat, the Coquette, on very different lines, for although only 66 feet long, she drew 10 feet of water, and in a match on the open sea, she beat the Marie easily, showing the superiority of the deep-keeled model for windy weather. Profiting by these experiences and widely gathered information, a new designer essayed the task of making a still better yacht. This was George Steers, the son of a British naval captain and ship modeler, who had become an American naval officer and was the first man to take charge of the Washington Navy Yard. He built several graceful and fleet-winged sloops, famous in their day, such as the Julia, David Carl's Gracie, and many pilot boats and ships. His most celebrated production, however, and the one which gave our yachtsmen an international reputation and established their method of pursuing recreation as the foremost American sport, was the America, from which the America Cup races take origin and name. 
The origin was really accidental. When the first World's Fair was to be held at the Crystal Palace in London, one of the attendant festivities was a great national gathering of British yachts in their favorite harbor, Cows, at which it was announced foreign yachtsmen were to be welcome, especially Americans. In preparation for it, John C. Stevens of Hoboken, then Commodore of the New York Yacht Club, and some of his friends ordered a new yacht from George Steers with which to cross the Atlantic and meet the English races. This new boat, completed in the spring of 1851 and named America, was schooner-rigged but had raking masts, no topsails except a small main gaff, and only one jeep whose foot was laced to a boom. Such was the style of the day but later she was changed in rig so as to carry far more and bigger sails, more like those of a modern schooner yacht. The moment she arrived in Cowes, in the early summer of 1851, her superiority in speed was conceded and no British captain would consent to meet her, but finally a match was extemporized, open to all nations, for which a prize was offered in the form of a cup presented by the Royal Yacht Squadron, not by the Queen, as usually said. Fifteen yachts responded, but none showed what it could do, for there was little wind, and the cup was awarded to the America more in general acknowledgment of its excellence than because of any great performance there. Not much importance was attached to the incident, but the silver tankard was brought home and left to ornament Commodore Stevens' drawing room until 1857, when its owners dedicated it to the purpose of a perpetual challenge cup in charge of the New York Yacht Club for international races under specified conditions. Fifteen years elapsed, however, before the first contestant appeared. The America had differed prominently in shape from all her opponents at Cowes by having fine hollowed bows and a wide stern, instead of the bluff bows and narrowing afterpart, the coat's head and the mackerel's tail pattern of English craft. She also had sails that hung very flat instead of bailing out under the wind as was the foreign style. In these directions British yachtsmen saw good and tried to improve but they would have nothing to do with centerboards and clung to their cutter rig. We, on the other hand, had gained ideas as to improving rig, especially in the schooners, and in the best towel of ballast outside and in. At length, in 1870, an English schooner, the Cambria, came over to compete for the cup and was pitted against a fleet of crack yachts off Sandy Hook. But again, the wind was so light that the boats did little more than drift. The Englishman, nevertheless, was outdrifted by nine others, and the leader was the little sloop Magic, which became the custodian of the cup. The next year, however, another challenge was received, and the British kill yacht Livonia appeared and was defeated by the American kill schooner Suffo, which, under a new rule, had won her right to defend the cup by first beating in preparatory ocean races all other rivals for the honor. As this contest was between single representative yachts, tried in five races, and in all sorts of weather, it was a fair and conclusive measure of comparative qualities. The next yacht to come after the International Cup was the Canadian Contest of Dufferin, which was promptly defeated by the Magic in 1876. Five years later, another Canadian appeared, the Atlanta, different from previous contestants in being a single-masted, centerboard yacht, but her rigging and finish were so bad that her excellent model could not save her from defeat in 1881 
at the hands of the elegant iron sloop Mischief, which had been built especially for the race, and had won her foremost place through severe trial race as before. Up to this time, as Mr. W. P. Stevens tells us in The Century for August 1893, whence many of the portraits of these races have been taken, no pleasure boats had been built except after the rule of thumb. Some practical sailor whittled out a model according to his ideas, and the builder followed it. Systematic designing was unknown, and one type of yacht was in general use. The white, shoal centerboard craft, with high trunk cabin, large open cockpit, ballast all inside, and of iron or even slag and stone, and a heavy and clumsy wooden construction. Faulty in every way, as this type has since been proved, in the absence of any different standard it was considered perfect, and open doubts were expressed of the patriotism, if not the sanity, of the few American yachtsmen, who about 1877 called into question the merits of the American centerboard sloop and pointed out the opposing qualities of the British cutter, her non-capsizability due to the use of lead ballast outside of the hull, her speed in rough water and the superiority of her rig both in proportions and in mechanical details. A wordy warfare over these types raged for several years, gaining strength with the building of the first true English cutter, the Muriel, in New York in 1878, and bearing good fruit a year later in the launching of the Mischief, an American centerboard sloop, but modified in accordance with the new theories. The plum stem, the straight shear, and higher freeboard, with quite a sharply, though short, overhang, suggested the hull of the cutter, and though quite wide, nearly twenty feet on sixty-one feet waterline, she drew nearly six feet. Even with her sloop rig, she was a marked departure from the older boards of her class, especially as she was built of iron in place of wood, and consequently carried her ballast all lead at a very low point. One of the results of this controversy was descending to this country, from Scotland, of a little ten-ton racing cutter, the Madge, purely to show that capabilities lay in a deep, narrow, lead-killed craft with the typical cutter rig. The only American able to beat her was the Shadow, a famous Hershoff sloop of unusual depth, and she did it but once. Nevertheless, the controversy was not decided in the United States and the Britishers thought it worthwhile to try to give us another lesson. In 1884 they launched two big cutters, Irex and Ganesta, and in 1885 a third, Galatea, and Sir Richard Sutton, owner of Ganesta, and Lieutenant William Henn, Royal Navy, owner of Galatea, challenged for the America Cup. Then the question arose, what should be done to meet them? The British cutters differed from those previously met in that they were built for racing, not for general use, were racing machines instead of cruising yachts. To meet these, a scientific designer of marine vessels, Mr. A. Carey Smith of New York, was called upon to produce a moderately deep, centerboard iron sloop yacht on the lines of the mischief, but much larger, and he produced the Priscilla. But while she was building, there was quietly begun another yacht, the Puritan, owned and built in Boston from designs by an almost unheard-of architect, Mr. Edward Burgess, who previously to this performance had been renowned only as a student of insects.
The stout oak keel of the new Puritan was laid upon a lead keel of twenty-seven tons, carried down into a deep projecting keel. The plum stem, the shear, and the long counter suggested the British cutter rather than the American sloop. The draft of eight feet six inches was greatly in excess of all of the old centerboard boats, and the rig was essentially that of the cutter rather than of the sloop. A struggle decided that she was better than the Priscilla, and in the cup races in September she proved herself better than the famous English cutter Genesta. Nevertheless, when the Galatea, whose challenge had been postponed until 1886, came out, the Puritan had already been distanced by an American rival, the Mayflower, practically a larger copy of herself, as Galatea was of Genesta, and therefore a lead-killed centerboard boat having a cutter-like rig. Trial races showed that the Mayflower was able to beat all her beautiful predecessors, and again the British contestant was obliged to take a defeat and leave the prize in New York. The result of this last contest in 1886 was to cause British yachtsmen to abandon their old tonnage rule of measurement and adopt the far better modern one of load line and sail area measurement. Another challenge immediately came from Glasgow, supported by a boat named Thistle, built under the new rule, and to oppose it Mr. Burgess built the Volunteer, which differed from its predecessors mainly in increased draft and tendency toward the cutter model. She easily beat the thistle, and the discouraged foreigners rested for some years before trying again to wrest from us the coveted trophy. In 1891, however, they came to New York from the yards of the Hershoff brothers in Rhode Island a new 46-foot yacht, which soon put the fame of the volunteer and all her glorious rivals into the background. This was the Gloriana, remarkable as a daring and original departure from the accepted theories. The radical novelty in her form consisted in the great cutting away of her bulk underwater while preserving the full extent of the waterline and the making of a very deep, heavily loaded keel trusted for stability. Her hull was also novel, consisting of a double skin of thin wood on steel frames, while the upper part of the hull projected excessively at both ends. She was everywhere a winner, and was immediately followed by a smaller boat, the Dilemma, whose keel was an almost rectangular plate of steel, the ballast, which alone was trusted for stability, being in the form of a cigar-shaped cylinder of lead bolted to the lower edge of the fin, as this kind of keel was appropriately styled. Many boats of this pattern were soon afloat, most of them highly successful at home and abroad, and carrying a surprising spread of canvas. The year 1893 brought another challenge for the cup in the person of Lord Dunraven, sailing the yacht Valkyrie, but he was met by a new well-proved hash of Finkeel, the Vigilant, built of a new alloy, Tobin Bronze, and handsomely defeated. The following season the Vigilant went to England and found herself equally overmatched by the Britannia, owned by the Prince of Wales, while Valkyrie II was wrecked. In 1895, Lord Dunraven sent a second challenge, backed by a new Valkyrie, the third, and this produced a fresh American contestant, again designed and built by the Hershoffs, named Defender. The races came off amid intense public excitement, outside of Sandy Hook, but were most unsatisfactory. In the first, Defender won. In the second, Valkyrie was disqualified as the result of a foul, and Lord Dunraven declined to sail a third. 
Such has been the history of this long series of races for the America Cup and such the development of its defenders. But while they and their work have simulated interest in yachting all over the world, they have really not influenced it greatly, because all of the later boats competing were not practically yachts in which one might cruise and live afloat and enjoy life with his friends, but machines, in which every quality tending to comfort and safety was sacrificed to the requirements of speed. In fact, the owners of these big boats kept small, handy, comfortable yachts for their own enjoyment, and the racers were as a rule sailed by a skipper and a crew of professional racing sailors. There are said to be over 200 yacht clubs in the United States, enrolling about 4,000 yachts, an eighth of which are steam or electric boats, scattered wherever any water suitable for the sport exists. With the lakes and rivers we have nothing to do except to say that the yachtsmen of Montreal and Quebec are really saltwater sailors, for they cruise in the Gulf of St. Lawrence and elsewhere at sea, as well as their fellow sportsmen of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. At the other extreme, the Havana Yacht Club has American members who take their boats to the West Indies every winter. Bermuda is another favorite resort, and the scene of lively races with a local narrow sort of craft called a flyer, which will beat almost anything if only it can be kept right side up. On the Pacific coast, wherever there is a bay that will afford a harbor and a town that will support people, the yacht is used as a vehicle of pleasure. Many of the San Francisco boats are large schooners, a number are probably sea-going sloops, while of smaller craft there is an abundance of almost every type, although the New York catboat and the flat-bottom Sharpie of Long Island Sound are seldom met with, and seem not to be in favor. Pacific yachters appreciate the good points of the yawl, for the squalls which blow over the waters of the west coast are sudden and severe, and no rig meets these conditions of weather so well as does the yawl. The most important and numerous yachting interest of the country, however, as would be expected, is along the northeastern seaboard, where, measured by numbers and the investment in boats, wharves, clubhouses and equipment generally, it surpasses any other district in the world. More than 100 clubs exist between Maine and Philadelphia. The earliest form of yacht, as Mr. F. W. Pankborn reminds us in The Century for May 1892, was of course a rowboat with a sail. From the primitive spirit sail pleasure boat comes the ever-present and universally favored centerboard catboat, a type of yacht which for speed, handiness and unsafeness has never been suppressed. Keel catboats are also built. But the typical American cat is the centerboard boat of light draft, big beam and huge sail. The two objectionable points about boats of this class are their capsizability and their bad habit of yawling when sailing before the wind. Yet the cat is the handiest light weather boat made. It is very fast, quick in stay and simple in rig. But it can never become a first-class seaworthy type of yacht. It belongs among the fair-weather pleasure boats. From the centerboard catboat grew the jeep and mainsail sloop, a type of yacht which has always been noted for its great speed and general unhandiness. 
Small yachts of this kind are always racers, and the interest in racing is sufficient to keep them in the lists of popular boats. In design, they are like the cat boats, the only difference being in their rig. These two boats, the centerboard cat and the jib and mainsail sloop, are what yachters call sandbaggers. That is to say, their ballast consists of bag of sand, which are shifted to windward with every tack, and thus serve to keep the yachts right side up. A boat ballasted in this manner can carry more sail than rightly belongs on her sticks, but she cannot be very safe or comfortable. Her place in the regatta. It is not beyond the truth to assert that the sandbaggers constitute probably two-fifths of the total of small yachts. They will never cease to be popular for the reason that speed and sport are synonymous terms with a great many yachters, and no one can deny that these boats, like brother Jasper's son, do move. Passing the sandbaggers, the next popular and most universally used yacht is the ballasted sloop. A sloop may be a centerboard boat, or a keel boat, or a combination of both. She has only one mast and carries a topmast. Her sails are many, and like the cutter, she is permitted to carry clouds of canvas in a race. Technically speaking, a cutter differs from a sloop only in one point, as the terms sloop and cutter really apply to the rig of the yacht. The cutter has a sail set from her stem to her masthead, the sloop has not. This sail is called a forestay sail, and its presence marks the cutter rig. The term cutter, however, is usually applied to the long, narrow, deep-keeled vessel, and has in common parlance grown to mean a boat of that type. It is in that sense that it is generally understood. It is worthy of notice that nearly all yachters who cruise about in summer, and especially those who are fond of speedy boats, use either sloops or cutters. And it is remarkable to see how much comfort can be found in boats of these types, even when quite small. The average yachting man, if he be of that stuff of which good seamen are made, soon finds his chief delight in being master of his own vessel. He likes to feel that it is his skill, his prowess, his intellect that rule the ship in which he sails. And finding this complete mastery of the vessel to be impossible aboard a big boat, he longs for one which he can handle alone. This independent and sportsmanlike instinct of the American yachter has culminated in a linking for certain classes of very small boats, single-handers they are called, and this linking has given impetus to the building of some little vessels which are really marvels in their way. Simplicity and handiness of rig have been considered in their construction, and this has led in many cases to the adoption of what is known as the yawl style, a rig which for safety and convenience has never been surpassed by any other. The yawl is really a schooner with very small mainsail. For small cruising yachts it is an excellent rig, and preferable to the cat rig. Cat yawls are also in use, they are merely yawls without jibs. With such rigs as these a yachter can go alone upon the water without fear of trouble and with no need of assistance. Naturally, with men of moderate means who love the water, these small single-handers have become very popular. Some of them are not over 16 feet long, yet the solitary skipper crew and cook all-in-one of such a boat finds in his yacht comfortable sleeping quarters, cook stove, dinner table and all necessary fixings. 
the ingenuity displayed in fitting out the cabins of these little boats is quite remarkable of the many nondescript tricks which are applied to small yachts two are in common use one of these is the sharpie a simple lego mutton rig used with flat-bottomed boats large sharpies have been built with fine cabin accommodations and such boats are particularly adapted to the shoal waters of the south they are fast sailors but owing to their long narrow bodies and light draft are not always trustworthy they are cheaper to build than boats of other designs buckeyes are favored only in the south originally the buckeye was a log hollowed out and shaped into a boat and was used by the negroes today however buckeyes are built upon carefully drawn plans and many of them are excellent vessels they are common on the coast waters south of the delaware bay and are used chiefly for hunting boats their cheapness handiness and roominess rendering them useful to the sportsman a true buckeye is a double-ender but some large ones have been built with an overhand stern which destroys the ideal and creates a new kind of craft a few years ago the sailing public was surprised by the appearance upon the waters of a spider-like contrivance which its friends said was a catamaran this new claimant for yachting favor was like the raft of the south sea islanders only in name in fact it was not a catamaran at all but a new device for racing over the water by means of sails wonderful feats were predicted for the future of the catamaran and it certainly did accomplish something but after a long and fair trial for the yachter no matter how bigoted he may be will always try a new boat it was discarded as a useless dangerous and decidedly unsatisfactory kind of craft leaving the discussion of the odes and dance of yacht styles we come by natural progress to a type which is destined to greater popularity as time goes on and yachters learn the ways of the sea and the best methods of dealing with them although the schooner is generally deemed a big yacht it is nevertheless a fact that small schooners are desirable boats to have and that the number of schooners of small tonnage is increasing there is no denying the advantage of the schooner's rig over that of the sloop a schooner of forty feet is handier safer and less expensive to run than a forty-foot sloop the rig of the schooner is peculiarly adapted to all weathers and a small crew can handle such a vessel with ease when to manage a sloop of equal size would require the best efforts of all hands and the cook the reason for this is that the schooner's sail can be attended to one at a time which is not the case with the big mainsail sloop it is the small yachter mr bankborn declares in conclusion who gives to the sport its wide popularity and makes yachting so universally loved by men who are fond of aquatic pleasuring the small yachter is everywhere upon the waters from the coast of the maine from the shores of the harbour of the golden gate from the beaches of the atlantic seaboard and from the borders of the island lakes he can be seen all summer long sailing about in his little vessel and enjoying in all its fullness the excitement and delight of the most noble and health-giving sport with a pluck and energy that mark the true lover of the sea and a tact and skill that bespeak the real sailor he handles his little craft in fair weather and in foul in a manner that leaves no room for doubt as to its fitness for the work which he is doing 
for whether he sail alone or with the help of his friends or that of a hired man to run his boat he is always the master of his vessel which is seldom the case with the proprietor of the big boat and is in reality a yachtsman under all circumstances at all times and in all weathers he must be cool-headed and calm in times of peril affable and courteous on all social occasions and generous and prompt to respond to all calls upon his courage in brief a gentleman end of section 13 recording by tanika